I'm Chris Wright, and welcome to this week's edition of Right on the Nail. Today we have a News Roundtable episode. I am joined by presenter of Times Radio early breakfast show, Rosie Wright, UK and US political commentator, Edward Hardy, and former Lib Dem parliamentary candidate for the Cotswolds and founder of Save British Farming, Liz Webster. It's great to have all three of you with us. We're going to have a chat today about British politics is back to school after the summer holidays and it's hit the ground running in a big way. We are just about in the middle of conference season. The Lib Dems have already had their conference. Labour's about to come up and then we've got the Tories. And with all this in mind, it does rather look like the starting gun for the next election has just been fired. Now, just to get this timing down uh, as it should be, the election date has to be within a few weeks, I think three weeks of December the 17th next year, which would put it into January just after Christmas. Well, it's pretty obvious there's not going to be an election in January. So the election will take place sometime next year. We don't know when. There is some speculation that it could be as early as May or June rather than waiting till October. Rosie, what do you think the Sunak strategy is in terms of right now, if he had to pick a date, when's it going to be? I wouldn't want to have to make that decision if I was him, truthfully. You know, if we look at the five key promises that Rishi Sunak laid out to us, which we know was halving inflation, um, NHS waiting list times, stopping the boats, the things he's promised and pitched to the public, yes, he's provided some degree of stability after the turbulence of Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, But if we look at those metrics in terms of how he's actually provided for the public, it looks really wobbly. That's why we're seeing these sort of, you know, promises now. Oh, all of that effort that you were having to go through to kind of change over how you were going to drive. We'll give you a bit more time uh, to do that. Those climate policies that might cost you quite a lot of money. The knee-jerk reaction after we've seen the by-election in um, Uxbridge. The Prime Minister, it appears to me, is buying a bit of time to get some capital back in terms of the public favour to say, look, we are uh, on your side. And I think they need as much time as possible. We'll see how party conference turns out in Manchester. Of course, HS2, we still can't get any clarity. Anyone who lives in Manchester and uh, local journalists this morning in Manchester drilling the Prime Minister on that can't get clarity. So if I was the Prime Minister, I would want as long as possible to try and persuade the public, we are actually doing something for you and we can deliver whether he can do that, whether he's competent or not, whether he can do that might determine uh, when he goes for the general election. Well, the problem is leaving it to, say, October or even the first week of November. There are two issues with that. One, if something goes wrong in the meantime, you're stuck with it. You've got no alternative. You can't say, oh, my God, I wish we'd had it in May or June, uh, because you can't say we're going to have it next February or March. You've had it. And... um that that seems to be a bit of a danger. I mean, what do you think, Edward? When would you go if you if if you were Richie Sunak? If if I was uh, Rishi Sunak and I was being disingenuous here, what I would do, and I suspect this is what we will see eventually happen, is have a budget where you make a load of unrealistic spending promises. You essentially give away the the farm. You say. You know, we're going to to cut taxes on middle class earners and low income earners to try and appeal to those individuals. You say we're going to do all of these factors to address the cost of living crisis. Uh, And then you say, but to do that, we need to have a full parliamentary term. And so we're going to call a general election and try and run the general election on the economy. Um, It's something the Conservatives are currently behind on compared to Labour. People think Labour is a a stronger party for the economy right now. But that is the best gamble the Conservatives have, is to fight this on the economy. It's something they've done with previous elections. It's a strategy they've employed in previous elections where they promise uh, a greener economic future after the election and, and try and fight on that approach. So I wouldn't be surprised if we... We see uh, them attempt to pull that after uh, the next budget. Um, Similarly, they might use an economic statement next year to do a similar approach. 
But I think that's the best call they have is to try and switch the, the messaging up to, to focus on, you know, what they could deliver in a next full parliamentary term versus the mess they've created in the previous parliament. There's going to be so many different issues taking place in terms of the election strategy because there are so many different battlefields. There's the seats that the Tories won from Labour last time, the, the red, so-called red wall seats. One has to have a strategy for them. And in some respects, the Conservative Party are more Labour voter orientated than the Labour Party right now. But in the middle of all of this, you've got the Lib Dems who had a pretty successful conference last week. Okay, people are trying to take it apart. But uh, the opinion polls that I've seen since have shown that the Lib Dems have had a big bounce from their conference. And they're going to be trying to tackle the Conservatives in the south of England. How successful might they be doing that? And are the Conservatives likely to be squeezed in the south by uh, the Lib Dems and in the north of England by Labour? Liz, I mean, what do you? Where are you positioning yourself as a Lib Dem then? Well, I mean, for the first time I can ever remember, you know, people that I know, I'm in a very much a, a Tory seat, but for the first time ever in my life, I've got people saying to me that they can't vote Conservative, um, and and I think that's really extraordinary. I think the real challenge is, and the problem is, people don't really know what to vote. But for us, in my constituency, it's quite straightforward because the Lib Dems have made big strides here. We've got um, Cotswold Council, who are now controlled by the Liberal Democrats. And, you know, we've got, um, we've got a big presence here. We are seen as the natural challengers. And, and I think that that's probably how it's going to fall out, as well as this great progress on tactical voting with websites like StopTheToys.Vote. Um, which uh, launched for the local elections and really did have an impact. Carol Vorderman's backing them as well. And I think because there's a sort of, there's an absence of an overall miracle person as we had with Tony Blair in 1997, I think it means that it will, for the, you know, the first time in my memory, fall to a, a, a vote where people are going to vote on who is their, you know, who's the best person to beat the Conservatives in Conservative-held seats. I think that is what's going to play out. So, so Rosie, do you think we're going to get tactical voting then? Because it, when it comes down to a general election, normally the tactical voting that you see in by-elections goes out the window. Yeah, and of course we've got a couple of by-elections uh, to come, uh, several that Rishi Sunak had to face in his short time as Prime Minister. My my general gut feeling is that conversation about tactical voting is very loud in which in the parties to which it would uh, support, but actually in practice doesn't come into fruition. I think Liz has, has hinted on an interesting point there is sometimes people don't really know what they're actually voting for. And this time around, um, the tactics that the Labour Party are falling on, it seems to me, is vote for anything that isn't the Conservatives. We're not completely sure. And, you know, I'm covering the news agenda every day what it is that the Labour Party stand for. They come out with some of their policies, like we've heard about their alternative to stopping the boats and trying to have a closer working relationship with the EU. And then as soon as we sort of have a lot of scrutiny uh, of some of those ideas, they quite quickly, it seems, particularly from the EU side, in that arrangement seem to fall down. And it isn't going to be strong enough, I don't think, for the Labour Party to just rest back and say, you're fed up with the Conservatives, that will be enough in ourselves. We need to hear with much more clarity, and I expect this is what will happen at their uh, conference, is better defined proposals as their pitch to the public because it is, it is muddled now. Having said that, I do think when it comes to the election, there will be uh, the more classic dividing lines and how strong uh, an impact those tactical voting uh, strategies will have, I think won't be enough to sway anything materially one way or the other. So, Edward, I think that's a fair point and a fair criticism that Rosie's making, that the Labour Party policy is to like be as bland as possible on everything. Well, I didn't say bland. <laughs> because, OK, we didn't say bland, but to, not to really come out strongly with any, with any statement on anything which might cause someone to say, oh, I didn't realise that, I'm not going to vote for Labour after all now. So we, we have no really strong policy on anything, and that way... You just mop up the anti-conservative vote. Is that is that Labour strategy, Edward? And is that going to work if it is? 
I think that is currently the Labour Party strategy, I think. And to be honest, I think any sensible individual who was advising them would would go, that is the right approach to, to, to take right now. Every time Keir Starmer comes out with anything remotely concrete, um, the Conservative Party attempts to twist it, to weaponise it, to attack him. Um, I mean, you only need to look at the way that they behaved around uh, Sadiq Khan and the ULEZ uh, situation, which we've discussed on this show before. Um, but, you know, the way that that was a concrete plan, there were details, there was an example, and the Conservatives decided to twist little elements of it to weaponize it, uh, you know, taking bits completely out of context and so on. So I think Labour look at that and go, well, we could unveil a list of policies and at some point Labour will have to produce a manifesto detailing all of their policies. But in the meantime, the most effective strategy is to remind people consistently of the damage the Conservative Party has done to to this country, to people's, uh, you know, bank balances, to the day-to-day life. You know, you see what Labour are doing is constantly reminding people of the economic harm that has exacerbated the cost of living crisis, about Mm. the lack, the, the intentional underfunding of the NHS that the Conservatives done that has meant that waiting lists are in the millions uh, and you know, I mean, I, I I can't see where this is going to turn round for, for for the Conservatives. I mean, what Edward's talking about here, NHS boats, uh, inflation maybe a little bit, but people's mortgage rates are going to still be very high. Rosie, I mean, can can even just let, let's we'll talk about some other things in a minute, but concentrating on Richie Sunak's five mission statements. Is he really going to get much improvement on any of those before the election? Well, we saw um, data this week suggesting that the strike action within the NHS, which was for the first time ever in the NHS's history, junior doctors and consultants went on strike at the same time. The impact that strike action just in the NHS has had is a million uh, missed appointments. And we've now got record long waiting times in the NHS. One of the Prime Minister's promises and Look, we're stuck in a stalemate. The strike action, there's currently no negotiations going on between uh, the health secretary and the BMA, and they will strike again, coordinated strike action, um, when the Conservative Party has their conference. So that's one of the five pledges, which is certainly getting worse and not getting better. We look at stopping the boats. The 9th of October, uh, the Supreme Court, all attention will be there as Suella Braverman desperately tries to get her plan literally off the ground to be able to send refugees to Rwanda. The other plans that they've looked at, you know, the Bibby Stockholm barge, um, trying to stop the £8 million we're spending a day on hotels. There doesn't seem to be a practical solution to this. Now, are those problems where the Labour Party would have materially different strategies... I'm not sure. For now, of the promises that the Prime Minister gave us, halving inflation seems to be the one that he might be able to engineer, but that's the one that at university people have said that's actually got very little to do with government intervention. So even if we just take a very sort of uh, surface level look at how those five promises are going, um, they've been fairly disastrous. And and it's very difficult because some of these things are out of his control. The immigration issue is a worldwide problem. It can't just... It can't just be tackled in the UK by by Rwanda or extra boats in the channel. It's a huge wild world problem. The, the the Ukraine war is still going on. That's a worldwide problem. The interest rates, I can't see how we as a country are going to be able to turn that around that quickly. And, and those are just some of his key strategies. But Liz, one thing he came out with, which does seem to be working, is to roll back on the environmental program that we had in place the, the, the save the planet, forget save the planet, let's save people's bank balances a bit. Now, the Lib Dems are very definitely on the other side of the equation there. Who's going to win that particular battle at the ballot box? Are more people going to say, I'm with the Tories because they don't care about diesel cars and pollution, whatever. They care about my bank balance. I'm not with the Lib Dems because it's going to cost me money. Well, I mean, that's the gamble they're, they're taking. And I, I think it, it is a big risk for them, um, particularly as their brand, you know, was going back to Cameron was all to do with being green. And so, you know, when they turn around and, and, and accuse people of flip-flopping, there's no, there's no greater flip-flop than the Conservative flip-flop, quite frankly. Um, 
And I think that most people are aware of the, the dangers to, uh, with the climate because we're actually seeing it with our own eyes. Um, and the other issue that's only going to bring that bigger is our problems with food. The, you know, the problems for us with food because of Brexit here in this country, but also the problems with food globally because of climate change. Um, and that will only come into people's living rooms and reinforce that we, Liberal Democrats, are on the right side of history on, on trying to save our planet. But is it, is it going to come into people? Will it be coming into people's living rooms between now and whether it's May, June or October next year? That is why, Chris, I've, if I was in Rishi's uh, shoes, if I wanted to cling on to power, I think his best hope of doing that is calling a snap election uh, you know, sooner rather than later. Because the longer he allows us to rumble on, I think, you know, reality is going to hit home in living rooms more and more of the mess that has been created. So I think probably it's it's as good as it gets for, for Rishi. Um, and if I was him, I probably would have done mm. it earlier this year, actually. I think after the coronation was probably a jolly good time. Um, but who knows? He may have a great conference and decide to call a snap election and catch everybody with their trousers there. That's not impossible, Rosie, is it? He might have a great conference and we might have an election in October. Potentially. I think after the coronation, yes, the public mood was high, but Rishi Sunak has, would have only just really taken over the reins and managed. I think we, we quite quickly forget just how turbulent a situation he inherited, where every week we were talking about, you know, is this going to be the downfall of the government? You know, we really have really moved on from a year ago when Liz Truss would have been, I think, still about now, just about um, prime minister. So he has, in some ways, really provided calm. But that would have been, I, I personally think, too short a time frame and too sort of recent in the public's mind would have been the fallout from Boris Johnson. So that there are things to give the Prime Minister credit for, but whether it's enough to garner support, that, that will be the, the big challenge. Mm. What I think is interesting from a, a strategy perspective is when we see something like, um, as you mentioned, Chris, the kind of climb down on climate promises that we heard from Rishi Sunak, we didn't, you might expect then, lots of commentators have sort of pointed to this, that Keir Starmer would use the opportunity to kind of soak up that space and be speaking to everyone and say, look, if you care about green issues, um, vote for us. And that gave sort of a real opportunity for him to lay out a point of difference to say we do care about the planet. And we know with the generations coming up that that's more and more of a salient issue for them. But he didn't. He just sort of stepped back and was silent and Maybe they're preoccupied with conference, but maybe that was an opportunity for the Labour Party to be um, decisive and say, look, we, if you care about this, we stand for this and we're taking it seriously. And we don't see the Labour Party taking those opportunities in the way that maybe we'd expect. So it's interesting to see how they think um, the ground lays there. But Edward, who's, who's going to win this? I mean, if you're, if you're Keir Starmer, do you stay mute? Do you say, no, actually, you know, we're concerned about people's people's you know standard of living being affected by trying to sort out the climate issues or do you say no we're on the other side of this equation we've got to, we've got to deal with the environmental issues they're crucial i i think when you take the environmental policies that the, the conservatives have have basically about turned on um the the weirder part of that as well is it's not like he's made some radical change to the the dates. He's slightly altered the dates, um, showing that it's not a key priority for him, which therefore loses him support from younger people who care about the environment. But he's not abandoned it altogether. So he doesn't appeal to the to the right-wing individuals who really want him to scrap net zero altogether. So he sort of put himself, Rishi Sunak, in this a worst of all worlds situation, which, which seems quite a baffling approach. And maybe at the, the party conference, he'll sort of clarify and explain in, in better detail, because when he tried to explain the, the, his, his about turn on green policies, it, it didn't really uh, come across like he was prepared for it. So maybe at party conference, we'll get a more detailed approach. But it, it's just reflective of how the Conservative Party is in a way, a bit lost at the moment. They they don't really know what they can do to, to try and win the necessary votes to hold on to power. And, you know, you get that from uh, elements of, for example, Suella Bravman's out there making these 
uh, absurd uh, remarks about the the UN Refugee Convention, where she's deciding to to say that fleeing persecution because you're a woman or LGBTQ uh, should no longer uh, qualify you for for protective status. Again, it's it's a bizarre situation turning to people and saying you might be fleeing potential execution, uh, but we're not going to save you. She's doing that to try and appeal to these right wing, uh, effectively, you know, uh, xenophobic part of the political spectrum in order to secure the far right votes. While Rishi Sunak is out there trying to pretend to be this moderate figure to try and win centrist votes, they're a bit lost. They don't mm. know what their agenda is. And when we say that that Keir Starmer hasn't outlined a, a, a particular vision, a particular approach, we have to also point out that the Conservatives don't know politically where they are anymore. They want to be a sensible centre-right party, but also know that they have to pander to the far right now. And it's just this bizarre situation that is not going to help them in an election because people need to know where they stand. But they're, they're pandering to the far right, which in a way they don't need to do because the far right is really going to vote for them, unless, Rosie, they all vote for Reform UK. But they're also obsessed with trying to protect the, the red wall. So they have to pander to the... To, I'm not sure if you say it's the far... It's not the left because the the red wall are probably... It's always been the case that, that the working class are probably more conservative with a little C than, than the conservatives with a big C. But I think the conservatives are trying to appeal to both sides of the equation. And can they do that effectively? Well, it's why I think Swella Bravman actually provides quite a useful... Um, mouthpiece for the prime minister because she does all of that speaking to the far right and it doesn't have to come directly out of uh, Rishi Sunak's mouth so we don't have the clips of him saying uh, the more extreme things that Ed's just reminded us of of what Swella Bravman said uh, about um, changing the, the sort of criteria which someone would qualify for being a refugee the prime minister doesn't says that doesn't say that his home secretary does she's the one who says you know it'd be her lifelong dream to see the planes take off for, for, for Rwanda so in terms of catering to the far right I think in his home secretary, um, Rishi Sunak is doing sufficient there. The question will be the policies that appease the other side, as you just mentioned. But the, I mean, Rwanda, it, even if planes take off for Rwanda, it, is it going to solve the immigrant crisis? No, because it's a worldwide issue. It's a massive problem. It's only going to get worse. It's going to give them a good few front pages in the Daily Mail. Yippee. But all of those people are going to vote Conservative anyway. So... Is this not reflective of a wider problem with our politics in general? When you take a, a policy like that, similar with economic policies, a lot of this is global politics. You have to work in partnership with other nations, with other, uh, you know, very close allies. And one of the things we saw with uh, the last few years of conservative rule has been this alienating of some of our closest allies on the world stage. And the problem that you have when you do that is you lose that ability to engage in these close negotiations or you get shut out of the room. People don't want to have you there. And when you're looking at how to tackle, for example, uh, the the immigration situation with people coming across the channel and, you know, obviously whether you're on the side of supporting, uh, you know, offering asylum to, to those individuals or believing they shouldn't be there. Um, the small boat situation is dangerous and putting lives at risk. And to tackle that, you need to have close collaboration between the British and the French, for example. That is something that relationship has been obliterated by the Conservatives in recent years. And that makes it really hard to stand shoulder to shoulder with governments when we're, we need to work together on that again if you alienate people economically with uh you know within the 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 g7 again you're going to find a situation where it's harder for us to have a sway on these policies that we really need to be part of and i think that's something that the next government whoever that is needs to work on rebuilding our position on the world stage because i think it sadly has been tarnished well you're quite right it's, it's interesting that that uh you know, the Daily Mail always has France and especially Macron as being the devil. You know, that's always the case. And then we had Keir Starmer going out 
after Paris having a series of meetings with Macron, he gets pilloried in, in the right-wing press for doing that. But then we had the king and the queen going to France and really cozying up to Macron. So, Rosie, are they, is the king and the queen, are they on the same page as the Conservative government right now? Well, I don't think we'll be able to know that ever. Um, I lived in France for a couple of years, so I do feel like I understand the sort of French psyche and the mentality. And you, you say that Keir Starmer's trip was really criticised. I think he actually had a, a fairly warm reception from uh, Macron and they seemed to get on. Macron was having a, an absolutely incredible week. Keir Starmer was there, I think, in the morning and then the king and queen turned up for a banquet the next day. Yeah. He really was hosting us. And the, and the French put on a really fantastic show for the leader of the opposition and for the king and the queen. And actually, interestingly, uh, the French public are, are really supportive of the British, the British monarchy. I think relationships with France are much better now than they were a couple of years ago and certainly uh, more, much better than when the Brexit debate started. You know, I think that, that relationship between Macron and Starmer um, looks definitely positive. Yeah. And then if we just look a bit wider, you know, Macron is such a influential part of the, the framework of the European Union and compared to Boris Johnson's relationship with the EU, we look at Ursula von der Leyen who, having a meeting with our Prime Minister, ended up calling Rishi Sunak dear Rishi. I mean, these are type of kind of uses of language and a familiarity that we have just not seen with our European partners at all. So I think, criticise both parties, yes, but I think both have made quite a significant effort to try to rebuild some of those bridges because we've realised the degree of the damage that we've done in the Brexit debacle. And also and also that we need them. You know, we need them more than they need us. And that is something that needs to be said. Because whilst there's all this fear of people coming over here in boats, really the biggest risk to us, to all of us, is the fact that our borders are wide open um, to products coming in with no checks. You know, it's a massive health risk for all of us. Um, so it's European. Everyone's oh, it's okay because we've, you know we know that EU food is safe. But it's not just EU food. It's any food coming via via Europe into Britain is not being checked. And quite frankly, it's extraordinary that we haven't had a, a, you know a big scandal because of that. Um, and that's really what I would say is the biggest, much, much more dangerous to us as, as people in this country than people coming on small boats. But the focus is always continually put on these small boats because politically it flies, I suppose. Yes. Let's let's talk about something else. Let's talk about inheritance tax. Can I just add one thing, Chris? Yeah. Sorry. Uh, if you um, if if you take some of the that point that you were just making there, Liz, about uh, working closely with our European neighbours, that actually would be something that would play directly into one of Rishi Sunak's key pledges of growing the economy. You are not going to grow this economy if we do not have the workers and the trade that we need in order to boost our economic situation. And both of those things could be solved by closer collaboration with the European Union. We see that with a, with a lack of workers in certain key areas because they were originally coming from the European Union prior to the changes in our relationship with, uh, with the bloc. So it is important that we address that fundamentally and that will really help to grow the economy. And I think that's something that... You know, whatever side of the Brexit debate you were on, I think a lot of people now will look at that and go, that is a sensible economic approach to support our, our country's economic uh, future. Now, that's a very interesting point. Now, we talk, now, we're talking about, again, it's the big elephant in the room, the B word. No one wants to talk about it in terms of the next election. Liz, your party is the most pro-European party of all. How big a factor under underground you know un under the radar screen is brexit going to be because now edward comes out and saying to solve the economic problems liz is saying to solve about food food issues we need to have a close relationship with europe keir starmer comes out with something saying we need a closer relationship with europe immediately he's shot down by the right-wing press brexit is not safe with keir starmer rosie do the public really care if brexit's safe or do the public really start thinking, you know what, 
I think we do need a closer relationship with Europe. I do think it's going to be better for us economically. Well, I think it would be interesting to ask Liz, actually, what the, la- what the Liberal Democrats' policy actually is about rejoining the EU, because uh, in lieu of having your official manifesto out, it's not completely clear. So anyone who thinks, yes, I want a much closer relationship with the EU and actually I want to take steps to rejoin it could be tempted to vote for the Liberal Democrats, but we haven't had absolute clarity from them on where they stand. Liz, do you, can, can you shed any light? Well, look, um, the manifesto isn't out, yes, exactly that. But we do have policy on rejoining the European Union and pretty much every single uh, Liberal Democrat member is the same as me, a Europhile. And we understand that to for us to, to really thrive, we need to be at the heart of the European Union. But we're also realistic in the um, fact that the way that things stand at the moment, because there's not been a grappling with reality around Brexit, people are still wanting to make out that there's going to be a benefit from Brexit when there isn't any benefit from Brexit. There's only downsides to Brexit. And we need to face that politically um, as a country. And that's not being faced. Um, And Labour are scared to face it because they're scared of losing the Red Wall. And obviously for Rishi Sunak to admit that Brexit is not what he backed or what he said he was the right thing to back means that that's politically toxic for him within his party. So for us being a small party, it means that we can't make a big pledge to say, vote for us and we'll get us back in the European Union tomorrow because we can't um, and there's no way that, that we can we can offer that. But what we can say is that get inside our ship and we're going to sail there because we will make sure that direction of travel goes there. Um, and and I'm, I'm pretty sure that because of gravity and because, because I work in food and I understand food, that all of us, the one thing that unites every single one of us who live in this country, we need food. And to ensure our food system is safe and buoyant, we need to be at the heart of the European Union. Um, and world events have only made that more likely because the global food situation you know, India's already protecting exports. So if you think, oh, it's OK, we can do a trade deal with India and they can feed us. Well, that is going to be very difficult because they're already protecting their wheat and rice exports and what will be next. So, Liz, how many people in the south of England in those conservative held seats where you're in the second position in the in the voting, how many of those people are going to support what you just said? And how many of them are going to say, no, 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 we're big Brexiters? And therefore, we're not going to get, we're not going to vote Lib Dem. Yeah, well, I mean that's the challenge, Chris, and and it is a sad fact that we are in this sort of awful political mixture of not being able to be straight with people, and all of this has happened because of Brexit. Um, but it is what it is. If as we we know what happened in two thousand nineteen, uh, when um, Joe Swinson said, "Vote for us, and we can stop Brexit," and and that that backfired on us. Um, and so we're not about to make that same mistake again. We're a small party. We're hoping to go from being the fourth largest party to the third in the next election. And we're being realistic about our goals. But equally, we must keep that the reality alive that in order to survive, we need to get our heart back in place, which is being in the European Union. You know, ultimately, trade is like a, a circulatory system. Brexit removed or damaged our heart. We had a severe heart attack, which is why we've had economic shocks. And we need to get our heart back working again so yeah. trade can flow mm. again. Trade underpins our economy. Trade then underpins our public services. Our public services are what we all need to ensure we're safe. Our schools can run adequately. And, you know, incidents that we've had with the, the young girl stabbed yesterday are more likely to happen because... You know, when services are cut, then there's, there's, you know, corners are cut and these things become more difficult to manage. Yeah, and uh, lots of other social issues like shoplifting and so forth. But, Rosie, I suspect that, in a way, there might be more people in the south of England. And I'm not saying in the Red Wall. I'm sure that they're probably avid Brexiters still. But in the south of England, in the leafy suburbs, that are really on Liz's side of the equation here. And they could be potential voters for the Lib Dem party in constituencies that the Conservatives need to win, that there's a bit of a sea change. And I mean, I think the polls are showing 
More people are now saying that Brexit was a bad idea. And maybe the Lib Dems can mop up some of these people and it might work to their advantage in some key constituencies. I think the Liberal Democrats will be hoping that that's the case. I'm not sure in reality that Brexit now will be actually a vote decider when it comes to the the general election. I think there has been, regardless of whether you think it's been a positive or a negative thing, there has been an acceptance of it. And people are frustrated by it. But the the main parties aren't campaigning on the basis of um, Brexit. You know, we've just heard from Liz, the Liberal Democrats, it sounds like would love to be able to say, uh, we'll bring you back to the EU, but they don't have enough sort of clout and capital to be actually be able to do that because of the size and the, the strength of their party right now. So I don't think it's going to be a, a, something that people are thinking about when they uh, go to cast their vote. The biggest thing ultimately is going to be the economy and how much disposable income people have got left, if at all. And in the South, you know, even the, the, the middle classes in those leafy suburbs um, have had their income squeezed in a way they wouldn't have imagined when they maybe previously voted Conservatives and they are pretty cross about it. And I think that's going to be the thing, and particularly where we've talked about what time of year um, the election might be. But if we've had a really difficult winter again and people are looking at, you know, heating prices and um, how much their supermarket food shopping is costing them, that's going to be the thing that determines where they vote. I think not. I don't think Brexit is going to be a vote winner. No, and I agree, but it, it's been 13 years, or next year it'll be 14 years of Conservative rule. And ultimately, you know, we sort of had this in 2010. The, the incumbents are responsible for the mess. And I think the electorate will hold them to account. And that's where I think they'll come to the decision. It's a tough, it's a tough ask for the Conservatives, even if it's a completely different government to the government that we've had with uh, Liz Truss and Boris Johnson and Theresa May to try and tell people that, you know, they deserve to be in power for another term. But they are trying, and there's a couple of things that they're working on, inheritance tax. Now, is that going to be a big vote winner, scrapping inheritance tax? It looks like that's really seriously on the agenda. Well, it'd probably be a big winner for conservative, traditional conservatives who, who, you know, have in the past benefited from that. But it's unlikely to be something that I think the majority of voters see as a, a key priority. I mean, uh, both, both Liz and Rosie touched on it. Uh, you know, they're the, the issues that people are really going to care about. You know, if we're going into another winter now, it's going to be back on people's minds about basic costs and support that they need. If you're uh, in a very uh, low-income household where you're potentially having to make very difficult choices, uh, you know, about whether you turn on the heating or whether you can provide, uh, put the food on the table. That's something that's really going to be on people's minds. And I think that's where people's focus will be economically. I think the the inheritance tax is going to be something I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's something the Conservatives uh, pledge to to scrap altogether in a budget in order to really try and appeal to some of their traditional core voters. But I think the, it could actually backfire with them with ordinary people on the street who go, is that really where you want to put the country's financial priorities on versus support that? Especially when you look at so many of our services in this country need great financial support. I mean, We've not talked about it today, but literally we have schools that are falling apart. They are literally about to collapse. And, uh, you know, this is something and I, I, you know, not just saying this is something the Conservatives done over decades. It is general overall mismanagement from both sides for several decades that needs to be tackled. But we need to look economically at priorities like that about providing funding to the AHS all of those areas, I think, would be much better vote winners for the Conservatives than than simply playing to their base. And I think that's a it's a very risky strategy for any political party to only try and sort of play to the echo chamber versus what the country at large is is focused on. Rosie, vote winner or not then, scrapping inheritance tax? I think Ed's made a lot of good points. I would say they're not just pandering to what they think will already be their core supporters. That's why we saw the change in policies over uh, the kind of climate come down and saying, look, for everyone who's nervous about charging your car or going to electric, we're changing. I think we are going to see 
loads of policy announcements from the Conservatives, even in the last couple of weeks. You know, we're saying, oh, we're scrapping A-levels, we're going to do baccalaureate-style exams. Uh, Instead, all the climate changes, inheritance tax, you know, there's going to be many things like this. They're going to try, I think, and do a kind of scattergun approach and, and target as many people as possible. And what about HS2, Liz? I mean, is is scrapping the northern leg of HS2 going to be a big vote winner for Richie Sunak? Well, again, I mean, I think I think he's in a desperate, desperate state thing, um, and in pleasing one wing of the, of his his base, it, it then alienates the other side of their voters. Um, and so I think it, you know, it's desperate. It's desperate actions by desperate um, bid to try and hold on to some power. I guess. You know, they they are looking, they could be looking at a complete wipeout, you know, because never before they convinced everybody the solution to the financial crisis, which they blamed Labour on for spending too much money with austerity. Then they convinced everyone that Brexit was sorted out and it hasn't. And so I think they're running out of capital with the majority of the country because everything they offer makes everything worse. You have the Midas touch and then you have the disaster touch. And the Conservatives are definitely in the latter group. And I think more and more of the country are seeing that. They're real tribal base. They have always voted for them, probably will vote for them. But a lot that I know, as I said earlier in the show, are not going to vote. They'll stay at home. They won't vote. And that even that is damaging. They may not be able to go as far as voting Liberal Democrat or Labour, but those people staying at home are, will, will really impact the Conservative vote. Um, and I think moving forward, the more that he flip-flops and tries to project that onto to, to Starmer, I think the more it'll come back like a boomerang and bite him. Uh, Rosie, HS2, what would you do if you were Richie Sunak? I'd be honest right now, actually. He's done interviews with um, local BBC journalists. You remember how that went for uh, Liz Trust this time uh, last year, but he's done it this morning. I do, and, yes. And try as they might, the BBC uh, Manchester team... Um, just tried to get an answer from the Prime Minister. And he was saying, oh, loads of journeys are made by cars. And uh, the presenter, I think she's called Anna, said, yeah, we're not talking about cars, we're talking about the trains. Tell us what's happening. The only thing I think that is potentially stopping them making an announcement already is the fact that the Conservative Party conference is happening in Manchester, because the whole conversation then would be, you know, how serious are you about uh, levelling up and all the promises you made to more northern parts of the country um, when here we are, we spent X amount of money already. I mean, we are talking initially this was going to be about 35 billion pounds we're now talking about over 100 billion i mean the the scale of this how it sort of spiraled out of control is there are of course lots of different factors at play here uh, but no one could imagine that the budget would be exceeding to the extent that it has done um but i just think there's real frustration if you've decided that it is unsustainable to spend that much money on something and that because the world of work has changed so much post-pandemic and we're working from home, that the line isn't that important, just tell us what is there to be gained from just pausing, making an announcement, which makes it every time they refuse to say we're committing to it, it makes you think, well, you're scrapping it then, aren't you? So my genuine desperate plea to the Prime Minister would be just tell us, tell us what the plan is and we can talk about then the implications of it rather than this constant guesswork, which is soaking up so much airtime with, you know, endless speculation. Has it been mismanaged? I mean, uh, what, surely... Could it have been built within budget? Why is it like three times budget at this point? I mean, I'd love how to know. I, I, I'm not involved in engineering projects on this scale, or I have no idea of how these projects get put together. But it, it seems to me, if we look at how long it's taken compared to how long it was promised and the cost, uh, it is just it is just extraordinary. We look at our European partners that don't have the same. Um, our European neighbours, sorry, they don't seem to have the same problems with building mass infrastructure that we do, is a, is a big question. I mean, they'll have to work out why it is that it's been so unsuccessful. You know, part of the original route's already been scrapped and it will be, a, a, I mean, it will be really embarrassing if the line doesn't even end in um, London, Euston and you're eight miles I out. I mean, I mean that's surely we, we, mismanagement. We have a very poor record of doing this and you compare our infrastructure to the rest of Europe and countries that we consider to be a lot poorer than us, which clearly aren't. And if you're going to have this, okay, I can see it working. A a high-speed train from London to Manchester, fantastic. I think a lot of us would take it. It would work for a lot of people. But a high-speed train from somewhere west of London, Old Oak Common, 
to Birmingham. I mean, that's what well, that just seems like a complete white elephant. So I think, Edward, I'll, surely we're stuck at the point where we might as well get the job finished now. Well, I think that if you speak to people in parts of the north and as someone who grew up there, the lack of respect that previous governments have shown and the current government has shown to northern regions has been genuinely one of the most disgraceful and damaging things I think that economically has ever been done to this country. We have created a country now which and it has it's led to to loads of other uh, problems from it where we are effectively one economic powerhouse. We have London. And yes, there is Birmingham, Manchester, and they do off things, but they are nowhere near the potential that they could be. And that by focusing solely on putting infrastructure and support and money into London, we have created uh, pressure on schools, health services, housing in London that makes it effectively unsustainable to keep that as our sole economic powerhouse. We need governments to look and I get very passionate about this as someone who grew up there and, and saw the potential and the lack of infrastructure that, that there is up there. We need to invest in connecting up Manchester, Leeds, Birmingham, uh, Edinburgh, Glasgow, places in this, uh, you know, Cardiff. Don't forget in, in Bristol, yeah, Cardiff. Don't forget the rest. Yeah. <laughs> Cardiff. There's, there's, there's huge potential in all of these countries, in all of these regions to have massive uh, economic benefits and also then bring huge benefits to the lives of people who live in those areas. We shouldn't have a country where someone who is born in Blackpool realises that they have to move to London if they're going to have you know, the the career that they want because the money and the infrastructure is not in Blackpool or that northwest region. And so by cutting off HS2, by by having a situation where we don't have proper connectivity, you are really hampering the lives of people and the overall economic success of this country. And it's something that sadly has happened for decades that governments have gone, let's focus on the easy, let's focus on London. Yet London is well connected. You don't need to put more train routes into London. You need to put better train routes between the other hubs in this country. And that's something that we, we really need to, to focus but on. But also our roads are woefully poor as well. You know, that's it's not, it's not as if there's an alternative. I mean, if I try and travel up north, the M, I go at the M5 and the M6. I mean, it, it's the stuff of nightmares, which is why you think, well, I go on the train. And then you look at the train, you think, oh, my goodness, how do I get there on train? <laughs> you know, we are. But, but we, can't, we, can't, we can't even fix the potholes on the road. So... Surely we should fix the potholes on the roads first, because without the potholes being fixed, the roads are going to collapse. Well, actually, that's what the Prime Minister was trying to say to the residents of Manchester on BBC Manchester this morning, saying, we're sorting the potholes. They're like, well, what about HS2? But they're not sorting the potholes. And in terms of infrastructure projects, I remember when I first moved to London in, in about 68, there was a lot of talk about the new London airport. We needed a new London airport. And we talked about it. There were so many different ideas that came up for where it would be. And there was pressure groups that it should be here and shouldn't be there. And we talked and talked and talked and nothing happened. And in the meantime, Paris built Charles de Gaulle. Munich built a new airport. Amsterdam built a new... Everybody built a new airport and we didn't. And we're still stuck with Heathrow, which isn't fit for purpose in a lot of respects. And that was like 50 years ago. And we just talk and talk and we never get anywhere here. That's a big problem. Well, it, it, exactly, Chris. You see, there are countries around the world that have built airports from scratch, from literally nothing on the yes, ground. To Tokyo's, Tokyo's another global one. There's, there's so many In of the them. In the time that we have been dithering about a third runway. And it, it's another situation where... If you don't want a third runway, let's say no third runway, it's not going to happen and focus on other Ex areas. Yes, you've got exactly. South Africa, you've got Bournemouth, you've got other areas you could put money in. But just part of our problem in this country of building massive infrastructure problems is just this dithering and delay. And you 
before you've even got to any possibility of starting the project, you've probably spent about a decade going through committees and reports and councils and MPs and local planning. And it just means that any infrastructure problem, you know, HS2, when it actually is operational, if it ever is operational, will still be about two decades behind the latest technology that we could have yeah. because we've spent so long building it. It's just absurd. Uh, and and now we might not even build it. Okay, one word answers, everybody. Uh, in turn, <laughs> when will the next election be? Liz, one word answer. Oh, pressing me. Um, probably next spring. Rosie? Sometime next year. That's all you're going to say? Edward? Edward, when will it be? As late as humanly possible for Rishi Sunak. He wants to cling on as long as he can. Okay, and Liz, what's gonna, what will the result be? Who will win it? I think uh, it's either going to be a Labour majority or we could end up with, uh, a, you know, a Labour minority looking for some votes to prop them up, possibly from my party. <laughs> exactly. And Rosie, what do you, who's going to win it then? I don't know. Too close to call still. Not necessarily. I just think we've made predictions that we think are slam dunk so many times. And okay. there's a lot of time. If it is in a year's time, a lot can change in a year. Okay, and what about you, Edward? Who's going to win it? I, I think it's very, very much going to be closer than a lot of people think. I think that outcome that, that Liz talked about of potentially having, uh, you know, either a confidence supply or coalition situation between Labour and the Lib Dems could be where we end up, uh, or a slim majority for the, the Labour Party. Um, yeah, I think that if, if they held it today, they might get, I think, a polls at 100 seat majority. But I think that that's uh, that would be uh, Keir Starmer's uh, wildest dreams, probably. I think I mean, my gut feeling is I'm I would go for May, June and a and a Labour majority, but not enough to work without support from the Lib Dems. That would be a good result. That's a good result. I think if we could change the voting system, if we could get proportional representation through, we might find we get better at making decisions and we don't end up with political hot potatoes like HS2. Um, you know, just proper decisions will, will be less politically hot. Well, we, we might well. Anyway, I think we've nailed it just about. Uh, you've been listening to Right on the Nail with me, Chris Wright. Thank you to all of our panellists. Liz Webster, Edward Hardy, and Rosie Wright. Great conversation, and uh, we shall see what happens in the fullness of time. We've got the party conferences coming up over for the major parties, the two main parties, over the next two or three weeks. That'll give us a bit more enlightenment. Anyway, uh, if you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and a rating on your podcast app. The episode was produced by Tom Platts and is published by New Thinking. Find out more at newthinking.com. And remember, we have a new episode every week, so catch you next time on Right on the Nail. Right on the Nail.